Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. On the show today, we have uh, Dr. Noor Syed. Welcome to the show, doctor. Thanks for having me, Ben. Such a pleasure. Please call me Noor. Oh, okay, we'll do. Um, I didn't uh, give you a heads up before we started, but so, uh, something I've been trying to do uh, a little more when I uh, when I start interviews is I like to start the interview with just a, a, a little bit of a acknowledgement of um, uh, that I'm on the stolen lands of uh, First Nations people, uh, in particular. Um, uh, the Talaman First Nation uh, and folks who are maybe actually folks who will be listening to repeat or episode maybe the last sort of five or six episodes um, sort of before this one will see a common theme now of, of me doing these land acknowledgements earlier episodes I wasn't doing that and it's just part of my journey towards truth and reconciliation uh, on September 30th today's just for folks timeline today's October 6th uh, 2022 and so I guess basically a week tomorrow, a week ago tomorrow, we had um, uh, Canada had the second annual uh, National Truth and Reconciliation Day, um, and that was part of a part of a I think maybe ninety three calls to action that came out of this thing called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, which essentially was you know uh, put together to sort of acknowledge and um, and uh, um and heal um you know or try to heal in some way or reckon i guess reconcile that's what it's called reconciliation get the the the, the, the actual facts about uh the residential school um uh fiasco of of uh basically i think it started in like the 1800s and went right into gosh mid mid uh, the, the mid to late 20th century um and essentially these residential schools were and uh again trigger warning for folks i'm talking about residential schools and so if you want to turn the video off or turn the sound off for you know three or four minutes and fast forward go for it um but the residential schools were um um, um they weren't schools they were essentially institutions they were essentially concentration camps uh, for First Nations children who were ripped from their families, uh, culture t- taken away, um, uh, both both physically and sort of spiritually. So yeah, they, they made them all shave their heads and they couldn't wear any of their, uh, you know, regalia. Um, uh, they couldn't speak their language. They couldn't practice their ceremonies. They couldn't, they banned the potlatch, which was a, a, a common sort of ceremony that uh, uh, Indigenous folks would engage in. And basically tried to make them uh european christians that was sort of the goal of these schools and through time they uh uh you know a lot of atrocities occur in these schools uh folks that are you know listening out there that are maybe bcbas that work in like uh kind of adult residential care um may be familiar with the the concept in that the experiences of the first nations folks in residential schools are are somewhat similar to the experiences of uh, people with intellectual disabilities and also immigrants um, that were put in these institutions back in the day um, and lots of abusive practices and those sorts of things. But one of the, I think one of the 
the biggest issues, besides, you know, not that all those things aren't horrible things that they've already done, was that thousands of children were lost and killed um, uh, or died in these schools and, and were buried on site in unmarked graves, um, sometimes mass graves, um, and, uh, you know, never to come home. So, you know, parents lost their children and they never saw them again. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and now we're seeing a lot of sort of, there was a, um, I think it made that international news when there, a school, one of the residential schools near near where I live called the Kamloops um, Residential School um, underwent something called ground penetrating radar, which they were basically able to see what was underground and they found what was essentially uh, 215 child graves. Um, and that, that number I think is over 10,000 now in North America and, and, and the scans continue and the discover and the uncoverings continue. Be careful. We have to be careful not to use the word discovery because first nations folks have known about this stuff for hundreds of years and knew that knew this was going on and knew this had happened and even talked about it and even told the media about it, but we didn't listen. Um, um, anyway, so, uh, I'm, uh. I'm again, you know, just really grateful to be able to be able to produce this and be able to uh, be on the lands of uh, the Tlam and Comox, Homoko, and Klahus people. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and I've shared in other episodes that I've, I'm starting to do sort of my my kind of work in reconciliation, both uh, which I mentioned to you nor before we started within our fire mm -hmm. department. So I've made some connections with the Tlaman fire department. We're trying to do some kind of cultural safety work there. And then also with my agency, so CBI Consultants, and we've been working with um, a great organization, which I just want to give a shout out to before we jump into the interview, um, called Len Pierre Consulting, L-E-N-P-I-E-R-R-E Consulting.com. Len is, oh, he's amazing. Um, and uh, we brought him in last year for our first Truth and Reconciliation Day, and he just blew our minds. Um, and this year we brought in one of his colleagues, uh, a Métis fella named uh, Jordan White, who was equally just awesome and impactful. And we've now got an ongoing contract with Len's company to continue sort of our our truth and reconciliation uh, growth activities uh, sort of indefinitely. So um, if you're if you're looking to do any kind of truth and, truth and reconciliation work or or you know, I, I think Canada or in, in Canada or the U.S. because um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the indigenous communities did not have these lines, these lines that we drew on our countries. The whole thing was Turtle Island or is Turtle Island. Um, uh, I'm sure he could be a really, a really great resource for 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 anyone. So check out Len Pierre; he's brilliant, and and he's got a lot of experience working in sort of the social services area that was kind of where he where he was sort of before he started doing uh this kind of dei consulting work that he does so yeah really cool stuff and uh really grateful to be continuing on this journey really grateful to have this podcast to be able to kind of continue that work in other ways and i think that's going to be hopefully the subject of some of the conversation we even have today around sort of uh you know dei and kind of how that fits into behavior analysis and some other things but we'll get to that in a bit before we get started, though, um, I, I, I always like to get a little bit of a, a story on, uh, from folks on kind of how they got into the field and kind of how they got to where they were. So 
why don't you give us uh, your, your journey uh, from discovering ABA for the first time to kind of where you are now. Thanks, Ben. Thank you so much for sharing that about um, the land. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you, to be here on um, virtually on this land and doing this podcast. So appreciate you really educating your listeners and all of us on what's happening. So thank you. Yes. Um, so, so, so nice to be here with all of you, with you, Ben. I appreciate you having me. And I'm going to try to make this a little bit shorter rather than giving you the entire life story. Uh, but I, um, for those who... Um, may not I've had may not have had the opportunity or honor yet to meet and are listening. Um, I, a little bit about me is that I am a Pakistani and Filipino cisgender female. Um, I've, I'm Muslim, identify as Muslim, and my parents immigrated to the United States back in the 1970s. So um, I would be the first sort of born here in terms of my my parents' offspring, and that was a, a really kind of powerful thing for for me to grow up. You know, having my hand in different cultures and trying to sort of fit into the United States. And uh, what I really saw was a big part of why my parents came here to the United States or came to the United States, I should say, was the opportunities and the resources that were available that they didn't have in Pakistan and the Philippines. So I had a cousin, he just, um, unfortunately, we just lost him in the last month or so um, with uh, who was diagnosed with severe to profound mental retardation when that was a diagnosis in the United States um, at the time. So when I first met him, his name was Alaraka, was Alaraka. Um, he, you know, had some observing responses. He could attend, you know, he, he laughed, definitely had uh, needs, but we were able to sort of interact in some way. Um, and so his parents brought, my aunt and uncle brought Alaraka here to have treatment. And this was the time when, um, you know, evidence-based treatment was just sort of growing in its understanding. And I don't know that it had, had really made its way to mm. the common, you know, the common consumer. And I still don't know in many places, I think in many places it hasn't gotten there. Um, mm. But they didn't have an understanding of evidence-based practices. And they also were not citizens of the United States. English was not their first language. And they were really in a prime position to be mm. taken advantage of. So they found this. Uh, ex they found this reputable hospital in the United States that was doing an, a procedure, an experimental procedure. And you know, they didn't really have an opportunity to ask too many questions. They didn't really understand what was happening, but they thought, okay, this could really help my son. So they entered him into this experimental procedure, and the mm -hmm. procedure. So my, my cousin had seizures, but the procedure was to uh, really do. Uh, an option on his brain that ended up, well, yes, it helped his seizures. He lost all sorts of skills and abilities that he had had at the time he entered into the experiment. Um, and after that became a ward of the state in which they were residing, the state in which that experiment took place. And I always thought growing up that if my family had had the understanding of evidence-based practices and understanding the strategies that are available, how different the lives of my, co the, my cousin and his family might have been, you know, and that's just not something that they had had access to where we, where we were from. And they didn't have access here. And they were really, I really think, you know, taken advantage of by these authority figures. So that was the catalyst for me to get into the space of evidence-based practices and understanding how we can we can do that in a really compassionate and humble way. 
And then I, I happened to be fortunate at the time to go to an undergraduate institution, Binghamton University, that um, Dr. Ray Romantic was practicing there, who is mm. wonderful. I stumbled on into the Institute for Child Development and Applied Behavior Analysis. From there, was really fortunate to um, find a great master's and doctoral program with Teachers College Columbia under Dr. Douglas Greer, where we did a lot of the application of behavior analysis to schooling. And then I was a direct therapist. I was an administrator, a teacher, a supervisor, home-based clinic and in school mm. settings. Um, and then going back to my roots, which was so, which was really meant the most to me was that I got a chance to work with organizations like the Global Autism Project, where I was um, the research and international program coordinator there. And we got to connect mm. with folks from around the world. And tr again, trying to think about evidence-based practice, but thinking again about my cousin in a way that is culturally responsive. And I know that's been a really kind of hot topic and a hot term recently, and I, I'm glad it is, and I know it will continue to be because mm. what we can say would be, you know, evidence-based here in the United States or Canada, you know, North American literature is not necessarily so in different parts of the world. Um, so really fortunate to have had multiple exemplar experiences in instruction and with instructors mm. and professors in the field, then globally, you know, consulted with clinics around the world. Um, and now super fortunate, excited to have helped open up an autism clinic at Lehigh University. And I now am a professor at SUNY Empire State College for, we launched our ABA program recently. I direct our Center for Autism Advocacy, which I think we'll talk about. And I'm also the director of Anderson Center International, which um, so humbled and excited to have gone through those experiences and to be here. Well, first off, I'm really sorry for your loss. Yeah. Um, what, 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 uh, so uh, approximately when was this that, that he, that, 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 that he came over to, to and, and this experimental sort of stuff was happening? Was this like the seventies or eighties or this? It was the nineties, uh, wow. which I recognize I'm going to age myself here. The nineties to me feels like 10, 20 years ago. And I recognize that it is not, um, but I still, you know, I think still recent enough that you'd be a little bit shocked at how, at sort of when this was happening and what he was asked to do. And I didn't specify it earlier, but what they did was they, they severed his corpus callosum. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I think really clearly now we understand that that's not beneficial. And again, it was experimental at the time, but um, you know, they don't, they didn't give a lot of information to my family mm -hmm. about what this could consist of. And it was, mid it was mid 90s uh, when the experiment occurred so again mm. it was a it was some time ago but not not that long ago not that far back wow wow what a what a really unique story you've told about kind of how you got into the field i always like hearing the origin stories because i often they seem like they're going to be the same you know someone finds an ad in college and starts working with autistic kids and ends up getting into the field but every now and then uh, we get a i get a a really unique story a really kind of inspiring story like yours um of of yeah you know just a that's a, yeah, a traumatic family experience that led you to want to you know not have this sort of thing happen again to other people i had a i worked with a fella similar kind of story where uh, it's kind of severe epilepsy and uh, um, 
but quite a few skills, you know, and you know, and 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 and, and some 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 vocal some vocal abilities as well. Same thing, I you know, and I wonder, you know, if it was so, so, again. He had the the they called it a lobotomy, but I don't think that's what it was because that was sort of something they did, you know, in the right. 1800s and sort of thing. But essentially, took out a big chunk of his brain. And uh, certainly the seizures ended for the most part, uh, but like a similar story, lost all his skills, mm-hmm. lost all his vocal abilities, lost you know his ability to do most things. And uh, I get why. I mean, severe when there's no other options. But this and this was a you know a, a, a you know a family with privilege, you mm-hmm. know. You know, with access, uh, with uh, with you know, with uh, two working parents, and you know, the ability to sort of do those things. But I think, you know, evidence based or not, you know, um, sometimes these were these were the only services that may have been available, or at least funded, you know, sort of right. pre two thousand. And so I'm not surprised that this this kind of happened in the nineties um, um, uh, to, to to your cousin. Um, just knowing that there's been a lot of similar stories, and there's I think there's a lot of adults in care now that you know uh, certainly weren't didn't have any of the early intervention and and sort of you know um, things that that we're all familiar with now, but also instead of that had some other crazy interventions uh, as we look back at them now. Um, um, and I don't think folks are always aware that, of that piece. You know, it's, it's not that they weren't, that, that professionals did nothing with them. It's they did things that were just, you know, right. Hard, hard to grasp. I think, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And I don't know how often we still talk about it or teach it, but I used to teach or I teach in my ethics class about Pillow Angel, um, hmm. which is a case out of the United States. So for those who, okay. who aren't familiar, this was a really, it was a well-known ethical case. I think that came out of, I want to say the West Coast of the U.S., but forgive me for everyone who's listening if I'm incorrect hmm. in that. But um, Pillow Angel was uh, a young a young woman, a girl with who was diagnosed with um, intellectual and developmental disabilities, and her family, they and I, I don't want to minimize their concerns or misrepresent the situation, but to give an overview, and I recommend people look into this if they are interested in it. They were very concerned that they wouldn't be able to take care of their daughter when she got older. So when she began to menstruate or um, began to develop, um, you know, puberty hit, all of those things that she wouldn't be able to be taken care of. So they actually petitioned to um, have her undergo a procedure that would stop her growth. So while she would get older in terms of, you know, her age, biologically, her development would be the same as she was when she was quite young. So generally before before puberty. And this, as you can imagine, you know, to your point, was a highly controversial topic, a highly controversial topic. And I actually think that the family went through, um, they applied to a hospital for this and went through ethics boards, and it was ultimately approved. Um, and the family was able to have that procedure for their child. So I, you know, to your, again, to your point, like it begs mm-hmm. us to, it make, helps us to really think about what are the ethics surrounding these decisions, these decisions, um, you mm-hmm. know, assent, 
So not only consent, but assent from the individual um, was that was was she able to give assent for this type of procedure? Mm -hmm. um, if it ultimately helps the family to care for her later on in life, how does that does that mitigate the decision? I mean, it's really a complex, a really complex situation. And um, I don't know if the family's still posting, but they were on social media as of a couple of years ago and they were still posting things are going well and they were glad for their decision. The doctors that were part of the decision went through a lot of a backlash about it. And I think there might've been some ethical conduct investigations and it continues mm. to be a really kind of controversial part of our history in terms of things like experimental procedures and where mm -hmm. it falls, you know, what's appropriate or inappropriate. So it's um, something that I, you know, want, would love for us to think about because it's a very complex situation, but it helps us to, at least I think, get an understanding of the contingencies that surround decision-making and, you know, for all relevant parties in this, what are they thinking and how are these decisions weighed? Especially when we consider that the legal decision-making ultimately does not lie with the individual that's experiencing these procedures. And also what knowledge were the, were, were the caregivers given? I don't know the answer to that. So um, it's a tough, thanks for sharing that, that story. And it, you know, it makes me realize it's happening a lot. It's, it's definitely not unique, which is unfortunate, but sometimes people are, are sort of grasping wherever they can to, to create a different life for the ones that they love and for themselves. And I would say it's also hasn't, it's still happening like today. I mean, yeah. there's, 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 you know, there's groups like ASAT, the Association for Science and Autism Treatment that are, you know, constantly kind of, um, uh, trying to sort of debunk, you know, um, and, you know, sort of interventions that aren't evidence-based, you know, everything from, you know, um, uh, drinking bleach to, um, 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 you know, the hyperbaric oxygen chambers, the dolphin therapy, the, you know, um, and, you know, a bunch of different things in between. Um, and, but some of these things, you know, you know, I think are just sort of, you know, they're harmless in the sense that, you know, they're not really, you know, I, I think hanging out and playing with dolphins besides, you know, the fact that the dolphins are in, in captivity and it's not really great for the dolphins, um, you know, isn't probably going to, you know, make anyone's health worse, you know, uh, right. but, but other things like drinking bleach or, 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 you know, um, going through sort of, you know, um, sort of, you know, uh, there's other spiritual types types of treatments, you know, going to the healers. I knew a guy that took five trips down to Brazil with his dad to see a healer in, in the middle of the bush, you know, to, 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 to cure the autism. Um, um, I, I was, I did an interview with, uh, uh, Addie Carden in Senegal, mm -hmm. um, who's a behavior analyst in Senegal. She talks about how the, sort of the, the pathway to autism services for folks there is often first we go to, um, and I forget the term, but it basically was a Senegalese term that would be akin to a, sort of like a witch doctor type person. Mm -hmm. They go to this person, get that sort of spiritual healing piece in place. Um, you know, and, uh, and certainly, you know, it, it may have some, some positive effects, you know, on that spiritual level, but you know, the, the behavioral challenges don't wane or in any way. And then eventually they kind of come in, come in looking for services. So, 
you know, this has been happening forever and it's still happening now, but there are some of these treatments out there that are, you know, I think, and this is not exactly the, the point of our conversation here, but there are treatments out there that are, are, that are still being used that are very harmful and can have long-term kind of traumatic effects on folks. Um, um, uh, you know, I think you know, mm-hmm. physical restraints are a, a common one of, of, uh, in, in today's world. You know, um, I was just in the process, right. I was just finished reading an incident report from a program somewhere where, you know, an individual was, you know, I think they spit on the floor and they were put into a 20 minute restraint. You know, and that sort of thing. So this kind of stuff is still happening too, and, and sort of being aware of this stuff, sort of just from a understanding trauma history perspective mm-hmm. as well. I think is really important. Like I would never have thought to ask questions about sort of, you know, you know what kind what kind of treatment did so and so get for their epilepsy back in the day? You know, mm-hmm. because that may play a role in sort of, you know why they don't like going to the hospital, you know, or, you know, and other kinds of, you know, you know, issues that are kind of coming up. So, yeah. Um, some other things you're talking about, you're, so you're, you were, you were involved with uh, the Global Autism Project. That's, that sounds like it was a pretty cool gig. Did, did you start by, did you actually go on a, on any of the actual trips and that sort of thing? I did. Yes. Um, I started with our center in Indonesia uh, which was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And they are doing mm. incredible work out there in Indonesia. Uh, so that was, it was an incredibly valuable time, you know, really get to be with the folks who are change makers, you know, and wanting to engage in evidence-based strategies, uh, which is incredible. And to your, you know, to your point, as you were talking, I was thinking about how a lot of the folks around the world. So we we concentrate very frequently on our services here. I'm based in the United mm-hmm. States, you're based in Canada, and there's mm-hmm. certainly a huge need for services here, which is part of the reason, right? Well, we have these things like restraints happening more often because people are down, their companies are down staff, people are exhausted. So there is a mm-hmm. huge and significant need on the ground right where we are. Then you go into different parts of the world, like Indonesia, where I was, um, Senegal, like you talked about, I work with folks from um, all over India, Zambia, you know, Tanzania, mm-hmm. and that lack of resources is is everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So being able to connect with change makers who are trying to, uh, in, you know, implement evidence, evidence-based practices and disseminate and share, we got to do, this was some time ago, but we got to do parent training. Mm-hmm. Um, we got to work with them on like how to market the organization, right? How to get funding, um, what an intact learning it or trial looks like. All of those pieces that go into creating an organization that will sustain over time um, mm-hmm. and that will be able to engage in these practices. So that was that was wonderful and I loved it very, very much, which is why I stuck around for a while and got the opportunity to you know travel a little bit and consult with different centers and then you know stayed with them for some time. So while I'm, I, uh, I, the Global Autism Project is wonderful and I'm no longer directly affiliated, they're still doing amazing, amazing work. Um, and I've started, they had to unfortunately pause their trips during the COVID-19 pandemic, mm-hmm. but they are traveling again. So I recommend everyone come checking them out because they're a great, great organization. The Behavior Speak podcast offers CEUs for the QABA, IBA, and the BACB. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com 
forward slash shop. The first secret word is global. That's awesome. Yeah, I actually had a colleague of mine that did did the Indonesia trip. Uh, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know when you went, but uh, we'll, we'll see if there's a chance. Did you, did you meet a fellow named Bernardus? Yes. <laughs> oh, you did? Yeah, I Bernardus. Did, yeah. Oh my gosh. So, shout out to Bernardus Lariat. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. So Bernardus is from my neck of the woods and I, I, I went to school with him as well. Small world. Yeah. Bernardus is wonderful. He speaks, together. he speaks Bahasa. Yeah. Cause he's, yeah. cause he, I think his family's from sort of, um, somewhere in that area. I think that was sort of the reason why he wanted to go there. I, I thought maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I think when yeah. I when I met Bernardus, he had been there before, uh, but we worked together mm. a little bit, and he is maybe that's what it was. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> fun, really cool. Um, so, kind of got your story now. So what? So what are you doing now? What? what what's? Uh, what? What? What's your kind of? What's What's a day for Noor look like? <laughs> We just launched, the Sydney Empire State College just launched our master's program in applied behavior analysis in January of this past year. So super exciting, incredibly busy, really fortunate to say, and a little dumbfounded to say that we're at 60 students already in the program, which is, so it's grown, it's when it's grown quite rapidly. I am super, I have to say, super proud of Sydney Empire State College for promoting this kind of instructional model that I'll share and so thrilled to be able to be part of it because SUNY Empire really prides itself on affordable coursework and honoring prior learning that others have had. So Um, if you are a resident of New York, the coursework, the the cost per credit is 471 USD, which is something that you'll see in some of the state schools. Um, And we're really proud to be able to offer that tuition at a, you know, comparatively, you know, really affordable cost. But what's also super exciting is that um, if you are a registered behavior technician, we, SUNY Empire, um, it's called the prior learning assessment, allows for credits towards your bachelor's or your associate's degree. Um, mm-hmm. And we have a lot of veterans that come. We really primarily serve non what, what we might consider to be non-traditional learners. So adults, people are going back for their second or third careers. So the majority of our students are folks that have been thinking about applied behavior analysis, but haven't been able to be part of a of a cohort or curriculum because it's been restrictive in terms of when they have to attend and the cost for attendance. Mm. So our classes are online and they're almost fully asynchronous. And they have a strong, all the classes have a strong focus on compassionate, humility. It's part of every objective. It's part of everything that we're doing. We're growing, we're learning, we're learning with our students, with their feedback every single time. Um, Always getting better. So shout out to all the students and thanking them. Uh, but we're really proud of, of being able to support a program that focuses on compassion, affirming practices, and essentially is, is more affordable when compared to other schools in the, in the area, particularly like pr- pr- particularly private institutions. So that's super exciting. And really I also cool. direct our center. Sorry, I just wanted to ask, not no, not sure. not knowing the U.S. dollars and whatnot. Sure. What sort? You said four hundred seventy-one U.S. dollars. I mean, what's that sort of comparatively? Like, what would sort of an average price of, of maybe a a, a course in some other university be? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, private institutions vary significantly, but for comparison, um, some of the institutions that I've been affiliated with or been a part of 
will be anywhere from 700, 800 USD to 11, 1200 USD per credit. So there's wow. a significant sort of difference. Yeah, in the cost per credit. Um, and I can't take full, you know, SUNY Empire can't take only the full credit, so to speak, for that. It is our public school in New York that offers that offers it. But I'm um, so it's really like a such a great thing to be part of a public school institution that is able to offer what we hope is really quality education, but for that cost, which could be a third of other schools. And just another quick question. So mm -hmm. what do you what what makes a university public versus private? That's a, that's a good question. In the United States, so in New York, particularly where I practice, um, the private schools can be sort of owned by different entities and governed by different, you know, sort of organizations, whereas a public school is a government affiliated organization. So we um, are affiliated with the New York state government and our policies, our procedures, all the red tape is essentially what you'd find in a, a typical kind of New York state government affiliated org. Mm. Uh, so we kind of, that can be a little bit challenging as we'll talk about when we talk about the, you know, some of the other endeavors and going through all the different policies and procedures. Um, it can be tough because there are so many things when you're working with a government affiliated institution that would hinder you that you don't necessarily have at a private institution. So even things like reimbursable rates and um, how funding is disseminated, things of that nature, mm. there are really, really strict policies. But on the flip side of that is we get to offer tuition that's generally much more affordable. Gotcha. Uh, so when I hear state university, it's literally the state owns it. Yeah. Or runs it. Ah, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. All right, really cool. So you were saying you, were, you have a, a unique instructional model. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for the master's program, speaking to that, it is, which is not wholly unique, I think, in ABA, but it is um, fully online and primarily asynchronous. We only have one or two classes that meet. And what's cool mm -hmm. about it is that we are the, I think, the first and so far only public school in New York that has curriculum that also leads to licensure as well as the, so New York state licensure, which can be difficult to get and the BCBA mm. certification. Um, so that's, that's exciting. But on the other side, uh, so I also, what I was mentioning before is I also direct our center for autism advocacy, research, education, and support. Mm. And the center, which uh, goes by the acronym CARES is working on creating an autistic supportive and neurodivergent supportive uh, environment and culture within SUNY Empire. So mm. we're thrilled to be able to do, to do that because what we're really trying to do is sort of change the way that SUNY Empire and other schools think about inclusivity, um, you know, really in, in sort of embedding support of neurodivergent students within the entire college community. Really cool. Um... Well, that that maybe that's a good segue for you to talk a little bit about th this other. I, mean, I think I think we're going to say this other endeavor like seven or eight times in this interview, but because um, you seem to, you seem to have your hands in a lot of different pools right now. Um, now, what's the autistic supportive college, or is that is that yeah. that thing? Yeah, so so CARES is working on building this autistic supportive college, and what does that really mean? I think it's a great it's a great question that I ask myself all the time. Um, so we first tried to figure out is what are autistic supportive programs in the United States? What do they look like? And what we have found more predominantly is that the autistic supportive colleges or univer and universities in the United States are standalone programs. 
So you'll have, let's say, a mentorship program that someone can enroll in. You'll have a specific um, sort of sequence of trainings maybe someone could be part of and a community that someone can be affiliated with, which is wonderful. And we appreciate, we think that that's a, a you know, I think that's great for the students that are involved and for all the faculty mm. and um, staff that gets to be part of it. A challenge with that, that we discovered, and in um, our first year, we did a lot of interviewing, a lot of focus groups, interviews, um, a one-to-one, -one, you know, small group. We did town halls. We essentially, you know, we, we worked with our students. We did needs assessments. We tried to understand, you know, how can we build an autistic supportive college? What is, what does that mean to you and our neurodivergent mm -hmm. supportive college? What are we looking for? And what we found was that um, two major things. One is that a forced disclosure to be part of a program can be prohibitive and even stigmatizing for some of the students. So for kind of a frame of reference in the, in the US, and I, and I wish, I, I apologize, I wish I could speak to other parts of the world. I know again, Australia does a lot in this um, and I'm not quite sure what other countries, not quite sure what Canada's doing in this space. Um, but in the US, generally only 2% of college students identify with autism or at least openly identify with autism. Um, mm. Our research suggests that so many more autistic individuals would like to go to college but are not able to get there because uh, you know, the coursework is not something that they are able to sort of respond to or that they are, um, you know, they grow concerned about different pieces and they're not able to continue. They don't have the supports that they need to continue. Um, and generally the programs that have existed ask someone to disclose that they are autistic or neurodivergent in some way and generally mm. register for with some type of office to receive supports. So mm. That can be really challenging, right? If someone mm -hmm. someone may not want to disclose, it can again they you know reports have indicated it can be they can feel ostracized or stigmatized, um, and so that's a challenge. The second challenge that's come up quite a bit is that um, at least in the United States, about fifty percent of the programs also require additional tuition or an additional pay. So now these students have to pay to get to college and they have to say, well, they have to disclose and say, you know, I identify with this um, diagnosis and now I have to register and now I have to pay to receive the services. And that's really, wow. Right. Yeah. And that so pay, I disclose, I disclose my, my, you know, identity, which, you know, maybe something I don't want to do and I'm punished <laughs> because now I have to pay more too. Yes. That's exactly how I feel. Right. So if I, if there were supports for, for Muslim people, let's say, and I were to go in and say, you know, I'm Muslim, um, suddenly mm. I'm being charged extra for being Muslim. Exactly. Like it doesn't, it doesn't sit well. Right. There's, I think there's a, there's a big problem in that respect. And mm -hmm. so we wanted to address that issue. Um, and then finally, too, some of these programs have a finite number of spots. So if you're not able to get in or, you know, um, able to go through the application process soon enough, then you're waiting for supports, which is, mm -hmm. um, I think, a challenge. So what we opted to do, my colleagues and I in building the center, is that we decided instead, okay, let's try to build a multi-tiered system of support framework within the college environment. Mm. So let's implement or, and let's implement universal supports throughout curriculum, throughout the curriculum, the front-facing offices, basically within the entire institution. Mm -hmm. And let's 
create more intensive support structures for those who need it. But the first thing we're going to do is try to implement these protocols and these procedures that research supports can help everybody and put that in place right away so that we can mm. be a resource for students so that they don't have to disclose, they don't have to pay, um, and they don't have to wait. And that's what that's and we're doing that just to add to with a group of advisory team members who are SUNY Empire State College and in the community that are composed of um, those who have openly identified with us as autistic. So advocates, autistic alumni, autistic students, current students, uh, caregivers in autism, the, in the autistic communities and professionals working side by side. Mm. So including behavior analysts, data specialists and multi-tiered system of support um, mm. experts, all really working hand in hand to try to build this community within SUNY Empire. Mm. Super cool. Congratulations. That's so awesome. Okay. So few questions uh sounds really neat um so if you don't have to identify then i suppose you don't also have to be autistic okay. to go right so is sort of the idea of autistic supportive college just sort of something to explain to people but you don't actually call it that yeah that's a, that's a really good question we have just received an Autistic Supportive College designation from Anderson Center for Autism, mm -hmm. um, which so we we will kind of be sharing that at some point more loudly. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, what we've sort of helped, what we've sort of framed our Supportive College as, or what we have framed our Supportive College as, is really a universal support framework. So to your point, you don't have to be autistic or neurodivergent to access these supports because things like executive functioning skills is something that I think many of us could benefit from. I know that I can Absolutely. certainly be one of those that benefit from it. So why only hold it for a student that might openly disclose as autistic? So many people could, could really sort of enjoy that use. So while we have that designation or that designation is coming, it really is in manifestation a change in the way that the college has implemented what they're doing, right? It's it's trying to streamline all the processes, make it really clear um, so that it can be supportive of all students. And then that being said, um, we have launched or we're launching a training on autism for all, that's mandatory for all faculty, staff, and professional employees um, that give a background in autism and CARES has started to function as a, a, a place for being a consultant really um, for mm. students, faculty and staff when they are thinking about autism and wanting to support each other and support their success as much as possible within the college environment. Mm, really cool. Okay, so, and I, I, I kind of, I want to ask these in the right order, but I kind of, uh, I see why you, you kind of have to have the autistic supportive college label, at least initially, just to sort of, you know, explain to folks we're trying to be inclusive of everybody and mm -hmm. uh autistic folk in particular you know um um well i think there's a, there's a good chunk of autistic folk that want to go to college um you know whereas mm -hmm. maybe folks with sort of some other things going on may or may not um what are i love the idea of applying the the multi-tiered system of support to a college and it's it 
it's uh, well time for my brain right now because uh, I just finished editing um, and I'm releasing tomorrow my podcast interview with uh, Dr. Nicole Hollins, mm-hmm. um, and she's she, and she just she talks a lot about she talked a lot about uh, sort of uh, uh, multi-tiered systems in in school settings and, and kind of an equity focus and so on. Anyway, so I've got I've I've had the sort of three-tier system in my head for the last uh, 24 hours and so i'm interested to know um um what what are what what do these universal supports look like like what 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 what, what sort of things do you have in place that that are that are i love the idea of universal supports i'm sorry to uh, keep going for um in in that they're they really do up in the school settings sort of like in an elementary school or a high school or a middle school these are again i think they, i'm sort of reiterating what you just said but these mm-hmm. are interventions or supports or 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 resources you know that are available to everybody in the school um at the same time they might also be um um expectations Mm -hmm. that apply to everybody in the school you know and so often we'll see you know things in in a school setting you might they often talk about the sort of a uh kind of a matrix of support where they have sort of three or four kind of general rules which are like you know and they're not rules they're more like you know kind of almost values you know like be kind uh, be respectful um 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 go to class those sorts of things i'm sure i'm sure they're 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 definitely more detailed and and more exciting than my examples um but they're things that you would expect from everybody and then that way all the teachers in the school can sort of you know be consistent in their Right. kind of response to those those things and those those are, those are really great so what are, what what are some of those supports then in 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 a, in a college setting what do they look like yeah that's a really good question uh, so we know and and as you probably talked to this dr Hans about we know that kind of that multi-tiered system of support framework is based off of the you know which we has been impl- what has been implemented through positive behavior interventions and supports yeah. and responsiveness to intervention. And so for the folks that maybe didn't listen to the episode yet, um, but I know Dr. Hans will be amazing, um, is that it's implementing strategies that we know are universally, generally have been supportive for most learners. So positive reinforcement strategies, right? Behavior specific praise would be considered a universal support. Um, mm-hmm. In terms uh, of responsiveness to intervention, which focuses on academics, things like uh, direct instruction can be considered potentially universal support. So evidence-based mm-hmm. curriculum and, as you know, really kind of teaching um, towards strategies that we know have been effective in the past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we, this is really interesting. So we, we try to do that same thing at the institutional level. So universal supports when it was first described um, was, you know, was, the term was coined by an architect who was wheelchair bound. And they found that mm-hmm. They found that um, they were thinking, I think, trying to access a building and they couldn't because they were in a wheelchair. It was only stairs. And they thought, Mm. well, there needs to be a ramp for me to get into this building the same way someone who is not in a wheelchair can get into that building. And from that idea, the whole or from that sort of sentiment, the idea of universal supports was really formed. And so it's really predicated on accessing the materials and the resources in the college institution in multiple ways, really towards mm. one's one strength in terms of curricular development. And certainly, I, you know, I want to say that changing the culture of an institution is challenging. So this is a really ongoing project for sure. Um, but what we're, we're working on with faculty, let's say 
uh, for one example right now is embedding strength-based learning opportunities within their syllabi. So hmm. whereas we might've seen a more traditional, I don't, well, I'll say traditional, but you know, maybe a more historical way of teaching, which was quizzes, you know, quizzes, tests, uh, at the very end of the, you know, at, at the very end of the class, you'll have a final exam, closed book, two hours, you have a midterm. Those are the two things that you get graded on, which is probably mm. not, you know, as unique. Um, and instead it's, and again, I think a lot of the folks here will be so intimately familiar with these ideas, right? It's a, as you go along in the course, it's the opportunity to, again, as behavior analysts, right? Recycle till criterion is met. So for me, it's mm. not necessarily as important that you learn the material by this time of the exam, but that you actually know it and can respond to it. Um, mm. It's the opportunity of choosing between assignments. Um, so would you rather mm. write a paper or would you rather create a presentation that's based off of this content? Are you a visual learner? Are you an audio, uh, auditory learner? Um, how do you best learn? Because the content will stay the same, just the delivery of it will change. And so mm. it's working with all of the faculty at SUNY Empire State College to gain an understanding of how to do that within their curriculum um, and mm. providing support for them and how to build those different pieces. And then- right. So that's just one example, but I'll share too that just a, another piece of it, which I don't know if I would have categorized this as a universal support initially, but hmm. this on, and maybe it's not, but I'll share that this ongoing push towards shaping what is considered equity at a college level and shaping sort of the climate culture surrounding inclusivity has been one of the most in, if not the most important part of what CARES is trying to do alongside of the other offices who are you know, fully, mm. who are generally supportive of this work. Because mm -hmm. I think that we had always framed equity and inclusion in certain manners as related to certain identities. But at least here for SUNY Empire and potentially for some, you know, a few other higher education institutions that I've been a part of, mm. um, autism, neurodivergence, disability, uh, that has not been historically considered under the umbrella of inclusivity and equal opportunity. And we know that that's changing. And so it's really mm -hmm. important that we help the college and all the members of the college community see that. And that has been, that is an ongoing, um, you know, initiative that CARES is really trying to push forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and I don't know if I was reading you catching your wording there but uh the reason I, I i make that comment is because my next question is similar to sort of a, a school setting i i think one of the biggest barriers to sort of you know the the mtss the multi-tiered systems of support in school settings is the idea of a certainly the idea of universal supports makes a lot of sense and 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 i like how nicole kind of uh um, uh, freight, uh, added that the, what she really likes about the, the universal supports is how creative you can be in creating them as well. Mm -hmm. um, but in order to be universal, the teachers need to be on board with them. The teachers need to also be, you know, following through with that piece. And so I, I, I believe, I, I remember reading a stat back when I was doing my master's and, and they were and, and, and talking about that, 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 that there was sort of a rough number of basically getting 80% of the teacher faculty on board is what you need in order to have a PBIS framework work well in your school. I'm curious, um, 
what's it been like and 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 to 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 try to get sort of you know university faculty on board with this if they haven't been sort of familiar with this sort of model um and do you find that's a similar sort of rule of thumb for 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 where you're at the second secret word is sustainable that is a question um and i would say that it definitely is, it's falling in line with our experience, right? In terms of really shaping that college. And you know, what the, what is the criteria to be considered fully inclusive is a really interesting consideration too. And are we ever at a place where we can say, you know, with any equity work, are we ever at a place where we can say that we fully met equity? I don't know. I think that that's a really, that's a, that's a tough philosophical question. Um, but it has been, it's been a journey, I would say, so far that it's been a it's been a somewhat challenging journey but mm -hmm. a really useful one i don't think that anybody at the institution would say that they don't want to be inclusive and as supportive as possible i think everybody sure. absolutely does the reality is that um at least and i, I don't want to speak i don't want to overgeneralize but within mm -hmm. the institution where i work you know there are a lot of responsibilities and asks of the mm -hmm. of everybody who works there higher education in general has seen much more of a turnover in many areas i think that the workforce generally has seen some significant changes you know during the pandemic pre post during and uh, post pandemic um sure. and i think that's definitely affecting so affecting us and so to suddenly say or to say to folks like we're building an, an autistic supportive college or neurodivergent supportive college what I heard a lot was fear was honestly fear of mm. um, what does it consist of and mm -hmm. how much extra work will this be for mm -hmm. me and not mm -hmm. you know giving so much giving grace to everybody not because again they don't care but because they are, they've been feeling overwhelmed. And the initiative launched in 2020, um, or with the, mm. or CARES was founded in 20, in 2020. And so really we're mm. at the height of the pandemic. So everybody's mm. stressed and everyone's going through so many things. Um, and yeah. so what we had to do was just sort of take a pause and, and hear, right, hear from, from everybody and say, okay, um, we're not going to get angry and say, you're, you don't care, you're not believing in equity. Let's instead have more town halls, more discussions to find out what, what the concern is, what the fears are, and share more mm. about the mission and vision. So when we began to do that, and now we are doing that on an ongoing basis, meeting with folks, um, we're seeing that people are getting more and more on board, um, realizing that actually universal supports is not too much of an extra lift, right? If you mm. read, if you redo a class once, to try to increase strength-based learning, um, then you don't necessarily have to, then you can start from there if you need to revamp it again, right? And mm. that's not as heavy of a lift as telling you that we have to change everything that you're doing all at once. It's like, mm. here are these tweaks that you can do that will help support uh, a universal design for learning for everybody. And mm. so just bringing everyone along in that way, we, I think we've seen, I think we've seen a movement in embracing this idea of a fully inclusive college atmosphere. It'll take time before we get everybody on board. I don't know if we're going to get everybody, um, mm -hmm. but luckily, more and more of the community is really understanding that um, 
these are students that we are serving anyway. These are students that um, we want to increasingly provide opportunities for them to go to college and to go to university. Um, the same way that we did for other folks who have been historically disenfranchised. So we are, mm. we're seeing people come along. It's, again, it's a journey, but it's, it's progressing. Wow, that's really cool. Just thinking about, uh, you kind of touched on the equity piece um, and, and that it's sort of a never-ending, maybe kind of a never-ending journey. Um, something we kind of talked about before we started and, and about an interest of yours and, and I think mine as well. And so I think you're starting to do a really cool job here at, at SUNY around sort of essentially building building new systems um, um, uh, of support. Um, uh, and, I, and there's a term you used, um, uh, I think, when you were talking about the, the Global Autism Project sort of efforts around sustainability in systems. I think that's that's an, an, an area that's really lacking in our field and lacking in, I think, a lot of kind of, um, you know, um, helper slash kind of education fields, and but particularly ours. I mean, I don't think we as a field do a great job when it comes to sort of long-term sustainable interventions. Um, you know, I, I, I've talked about this. Folks that have listened to a lot of the episodes will know I've shared about this many times that we have a lot of research that comes out, some really good research, really, you know, fantastic research with some really, you know, neat outcomes. But for the most part, uh, those outcomes are measured for maybe three, six, if you're super lucky, a year, you know, after intervention, and then that's it, then it's done. You don't, we don't, we don't check it out anymore. Um, and, uh, and so we don't really know if they're sustainable. And, and we, we've definitely seen a lot of, really interesting research around resurgence and, you know, and all those other sorts of things that sort of lead to, you know, challenging behavior returning and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and it's only been, a f so, I, you know, I've interviewed, I've inter I think you're at your interview 49 now, and I've only had two people in my, that I've interviewed so far that have done long-term sort of follow-up in their studies to kind mm -hmm. of see if, you know, skills are maintained and whatnot. Um, and so I don't feel like sustainability is a thing we think much about in our field. And yet families are, and, 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 and staff and everyone are putting so much energy and time and resources into, you know, trying to make these things successful, especially money, lots of money people are spending, you know, uh, and, and, and we're talking about internationally where, you know, a lot of places don't have funding and so it's often out of pocket um you know talking about these low resource areas i had i did an interview with james lee uh recently and he's done a lot of work in kind of low resource countries like mongolia and and uh and uh and korea and some other areas um and and just sort of it's a it's a, it's a whole different game um how, how, how do we do that how do how do we get how do we build sustainable systems um, it's, it just seems so far, like out of our reach in some, in some capacities, the, the sort of idea around systems change. I get sort of small systems change, like you talked about sort of, you know, 
some of the sort of quick wins you're doing with some of the teachers and stuff at or the professors at the at at, at the university, um, but there just seems to be such big big systemic problems um, that uh, you know particularly in 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 sort of equity and DEI kind of pieces um, that are that have just been built and reinforced and 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 built upon even more to, so that they're they're never going to be torn down um i don't really know what the question is but what, what do we do how do we get sustainable systems yeah it's a great it's a great question great question ben um and i think one that so many of us are are thinking about right and trying to figure out how to make things last over time mm. i I have a few different thoughts. Um, one, mm. one I'll share is that I think that potentially we have to, we might start to reframe what we think of as objectives. Um, so always bearing in mind what's the long-term objective and what are those, those short objectives that will help us get there, right? Just as behavior analysts, it's very much a, a shaping, it's very much a shaping procedure. So with mm -hmm. the building the inclusive and supportive college, um, you know, it was interesting kind of thinking about changing curriculum as a, as a short-term gain, which it is towards the longer term changing the college, but getting to that place where folks are considering changing their curricula and changing their classes was more difficult than I would have anticipated it to be. Hmm. Uh, because, you know, if you say to me, hey, this is a great way to teach, let's try it. I think I would be all on board for it. But mm -hmm. we have, you know, colleagues that were not necessarily ready to make that huge change. And so um, when I would come in, right, with this this these exciting ideas, let's say, of, this is where we want to go, and this is what we want to be, and this is our three to five year plan. And we do have, you know, a dynamic, but a three to five year plan always. We realize that things take a lot longer than we anticipate that they are going to take. And when I think about systems that we're building just here, as one example, I think about what can we create that will last over time in terms of its longevity. So we are building a website that will house resources that are free to individuals. And while the content will change, that website can maintain over time and be a resource mm -hmm. for everybody. Um, the, you know, meeting with the deans to talk about how we can support faculty in building these universal supports in their mm -hmm. curriculum um, are things that is a practice that if we can always get on their schedule, we know that now from here moving forward there's always going to be time dedicated in faculty meetings towards building supports for neurodivergent and autistic students mm. and these are sort of small small gains if you will but mm -hmm. their cumulative effect is that now the understanding or an, an acknowledgement or realization of how we can engage in universal support starts being part of the framework it starts being an expectation mm -hmm. um, for folks and how we got there is we had to do a lot of, uh, we had to get a lot of buy-in. We had to do a yep. lot of, had to have a lot of conversations, had to understand the systemic issues, had to be able mm -hmm. to, we have to be able to speak on what are the benefits in terms of climate and support um, and slowly bring people along. 
So it's really, mm-hmm. it's, it's really, I'm starting to feel like a shaping, it's a shaping procedure mm-hmm. and it makes mm-hmm. the reinforcement contingencies. Um, I think at times they can feel thinner, but then it's really, then I have to change my expectations, right? It's a huge, I'm realizing now it's a huge mm-hmm. gain to get this meeting on the books every, every yes. term, every year, because five years ago, autistic students were not talked about at all. Neurodivergent students weren't mm-hmm. talked about at all. Um, and so that's what I'm starting to feel like it is. And you and I are chatting, you know, beforehand, it's a struggle because there's so many things that I think we, you know, in terms of equity, diversity, inclusion, access, it's a, a phrase that's talked about a lot. And within the camp of behavior analysis, right, you have some who are fully mm-hmm. supportive of it and some who are thinking, where does this land in terms of yep. behavior analysis? Um, I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I think, you know, what I'm, I'm coming down to, how I feel, and I'm very open to thoughts about this, um, is that there are some things that we need to change immediately. Mm-hmm. But although it can be unpalatable and it can feel frustrating, and it is at times, there we might need to really consider how we can work um, within the systems that we have to change them, right? It does take longer when you're meeting with so many more people and you're revisiting the same certain things and it feels like it should go faster. Um, but there are consequences and unintended consequences to all of the actions that we're engaging in. And if we take the time to consider how this might impact equity, right? Mm-hmm. If we engage in decision A, are we unintentionally um, alienating any group of people? Are we unintentionally in implementing policies that may not actually last over the long term? Have we heard our mm-hmm. constituency about how we need to make a change? Um, and again, I feel like that can be challenging because it means like there's so much more preparation and there's so much more legwork that needs to be done. And if you're outside of that system, you don't necessarily see it. Um, mm. And I want to acknowledge my bias and that I've been in some of these systems. So, you know, I, I want to really hear everyone's perspective, but I'm starting to feel like you have to keep pushing, um, keep pushing, keep moving it forward, but do it in a way that mm-hmm. shapes and changes that things become part of the fabric and the culture of a community. Mm. Um, so mm. asking students if they want to share their pronouns, sharing your pronouns as an instructor, making cultural humility and responsiveness part of every ethical conversation, having an objective for every course that focuses on that. Um, every mm. conference, you know, there's a line of research that's presented. Those things are small but they weren't mm-hmm. there some time ago. And if we keep trying to yes. reinforce that, I think we'll get to the long-term goal of uh, increased equity. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I like the idea of uh, sort of the small, what's the seemingly small win, you know, that sort of in, a, in, a, in another context might be nothing. But when you're going for you're going for sort of forever change is what you're, you know, long-term eventually we want to see, you know, everybody included and everything universally designed and, you know, all those sorts of things. And, but that quickly gets people's brains messed up and they start thinking, Oh, you're, you're just talking about like, you know, creating like a utopia or you're, you're talking like about a Walden two here now or something that's not never going to happen, you know, in, in, in reality. Um, and, I think that often gets people to shut down and just kind of give up. But if you're looking at sort of, you know, 
I like I love the idea of you know, I, I love I love the, your point about sort of getting the dean on board to just have that conversation at every meeting for a few minutes even you know that's a huge change you know mm-hmm. um, um, and you got to be happy with that I mean it's quite possible that you know uh, Doctor. Dr. Syed's going to be Professor Emeritus by the time, you know, <laughs> she sees, you know, the major, major, major difference. You're, you're going to go and look back on 40 years and go, whoa, this has been absolutely incredible. But it took 40 years and I kept doing that work. But don't, don't get me wrong. You're, you yeah. saw you saw wins every day and you saw wins every year. I'm, I'm, I'm not sort of trying to send the message that you're your job is going to be horrible for the next 40 years and then yay. But, you're, it's, it's, but it's these slow increments of, of wins. That, like you said, they shape, but they build on each other. Like I loved your, your examples in the autistics of the board of college of, you know, the teachers make this first change of making it strength-based, but now it's always strength-based. You don't have to keep doing that. You know, it's there and then build on that. And by the, by the time you're done, you've got this, you know, amazing curriculum that now maybe other universities are interested in. And, you know, the one down the road and then the down the street and all the state universities and then, and so on. So I think, uh, you know, people want to see in our field, we talked about this before we started, I think you used Mm -hmm. the phrase kind of quick, rapid change. They want to see things happen now because, you know, if they don't, we're going to fall apart. And, and, and in a lot of ways now, and we talked about this sort of before we pressed record, was that our field is kind of in trouble right now. Um, um, it's, it, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are leaving the field. Um, there's folks that were RBTs that are deciding not to go further. Um, uh, you know, I just, I just saw, I, I, I run a, I run a, a Facebook group for behavior analysts with ADHD and, and you know, someone came on anonymously and, and said, you know, I'm leaving the field. I'm, I'm starting a new career today. And, and they were supported and it was great and that was awesome. But we're seeing a lot of this, a lot more of this kind of thing happening. Um, um, we're essentially, well, the word, I think the word used, we're, we're imploding, right? Yeah. yeah. And, like, what, what do you think is happening? Like, what, what's, what's going on? The third secret word is universal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I appreciate your very much your your take on it, and um, and I have to just you know share again that it's uh, like I'm so interested in how other people are thinking about what's happening in the field, right? Because we only have our lived experiences, our perspective, you mm-hmm. know, our instructional history that's been shaped, and and I recognize that there are so many things that need that need to change immediately, um, but we. We are, so a few things, I, I think about one, the research and behavior analysis and cultural cultural shift and cultural change. And yeah. while a lot of the work right now is conceptual, I mean, I think that's where we, that's where we started very much, right? Mm-hmm. Like verbal, Skinner's verbal behavior. And now look at where we are with verbal behavior development theory. Mm-hmm. And we think about the way the behaviors of our behaviors interact with the behaviors of someone else, right? We know that behavior doesn't occur in the vacuum. It's very much a dynamic interaction and everything functions as an antecedent for something else and, and so on. Yes. And definitely in cultural systems change, we see that these interactions form you know, an aggregate product 
And then when more and more individuals are starting to engage in these behaviors, these, this culture starts to form and the reinforcement and punishment contingencies begin to shape what the culture mm-hmm. looks like until eventually we are, you know, really looking at a broader macro system and then eventually a meta contingency of these mm-hmm. um, these behaviors and these values and these traditions that function to maintain our behavior over time. And I look back at, you know, the the field, let's say, and, and when I was when I was going in, when I was starting into the field, we never talked about equity ever. We never talked about humility. It was not part of anything that we have have done. And while again, there's still so much room to grow, I think what we're seeing is we're definitely seeing that there these aggregate products, we're definitely seeing a broader meta contingency, which again, mm-hmm. it feels harder because it does need to be, I think, immediate change at times. But mm-hmm. you're right, like the reinforcement <laughs> changes so much, right? When we think about behavior shaping, and it really is mm-hmm. that 40 years from now, you and I are having this conversation again, hopefully, and we're saying we're looking back and saying, you know, now that this college has has made a change, and it's part of a system of 64 other Sunnis, and all the mm-hmm. other Sunnis' eyes are on Sunni Empire, they're starting to make the change. Um, so, okay, so thinking about all of that, I think about your question about the field imploding and. I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to acknowledge for us here and for everyone that's listening that, you know, today, October 6th, um, is just a few days after the Association for Behavior Analysis International released draft recommendations to its membership um, and a draft report on the contingent electric skin shock, which Mm -hmm. is a hugely hot button topic in our field. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm finding this is really you know, something that you and I had talked about, I don't, I don't want to use the word fascinating because that has almost a positive connotation, but it is definitely giving me pause to look at the way the Mm -hmm. field is on different sides of this Mm -hmm. with all folks kind of wanting to, I believe, you know, thinking the best of everybody wanting to support what's in the best interest of the client, what's in the best interest of those we serve. And um, I'm happy to dive into it if we want to. I think to your question about why are we imploding is I think that the definition, in my my opinion, the definition of applied behavior analysis mm-hmm. and what the dimensions of applied behavior analysis mean are where we are fundamentally and that we are trying to better understand it. So ABA, right, we know a core part of the definitions of applied behavior analysis are evidence-based technologies and socially significant behaviors. Um, I I think that we are imploding because we are now, in my opinion, starting to understand what these mean in the context of society today. Mm. So to your point about how few research projects have observed behavior change over long periods of time, Dr. Malika Pritchard, so keeping that in mind, Dr. Malika Pritchard also published um, a paper in 2021 that talked about colonialist research practices in ABA, um, which generally sort of found that we have not really been engaging in participatory or community-based research practices. So with all of those things that we're thinking about, can we really, are what are we really defining as evidence-based? Mm-hmm. Should we as a field begin to shift what we think about as an evidence-based technology also thinking about what Slocum and colleagues defined as evidence-based practices, right, with cultural and contextual fit. 
Mm. And what's socially significant? Socially significant, what's acceptable to the client, uh, to those we're serving and society? Might that shift and change over time? You know, thinking mm. about, to your point, what was implemented years ago, which we know now is problematic. Um, but, it, you know, at one point, the fields had a few hundred people, right? And I know that folks, close colleagues of mine would share that they were training caregivers, brothers, sisters to implement um, treatment because they couldn't be everywhere at once. And there was literally 200, 300 people in the field, you know, trying to serve mm -hmm. um, everyone that we can serve. So now we're in 2022, we're going to be somewhere else in 20 years, somewhere else in 40 years. Should what we consider as socially significant also change over time? And mm -hmm. should we look at what we consider to be evidence-based, considering, again, our historical practices? And often the, re the reinforcement contingencies surrounding research can be, you talked about it, you know, artificial. I would yep. tax that as artificial. Yep. So that's why, you know, that's why I feel like we potentially are imploding, which is why we're on in different camps on some major, major issues in terms mm -hmm. of what we are accepting as treatment, what we are accepting as science, um, and how, how and where do those reconcile? I believe mm -hmm. that they do reconcile. I believe in our, our science. I believe in our field. Um, but I also believe in our field as a compassionate, you know, ever-growing space that we need to really be mindful of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, we we don't have time today. I know we've got about 15 minutes left before we got to wrap up, so we won't dive into the CE, the contingent electric shock topic today, maybe another time. Um, uh, and certainly we can point to folks in some different directions there. Uh, but it is interesting to me that you know, uh, I'm saying we won't dive into it, but here I am diving into it a little bit. It, it is interesting to me that if we remove contingent electric shock from the conversation, um, what we're talking about is a practice that's occurring in literally one building in, in North America, um, in the world, in fact, I think, um, because generally speaking, it's not legal anywhere else. Um, uh, or if it is legal, these places just haven't been formed. And it's just mind blowing to me that the practices of one building are, is, is having such a massive effect on our field, um, and separating us in so many ways. And it really reminds, takes me back to kind of the early days of PBS in the 90s, in the early 90s, or late 80s, early 90s, when uh, Ted Carr and other folks were, mm -hmm. were talking about, and, and you know, and, and uh, I think Lavinia and Willis and those guys were talking about sort of removing aversives altogether from, from, from the approach. And there was a period where, you know, and some folks listening will, I might get letters, there was a period there where positive behavior support was, was in that controversial therapy category right along with the drinking bleach and the so on and so forth. And it was so interesting that it's a controversial therapy. Um, I think it was a controversial therapy because it, you know, for, I don't I won't get into the, the reasons why I think it was, but it just, it's, it's an interesting separation again, that then it, it's, it's these, it's actually punishment procedures is the line. And yet 
so many of us, including you know, if you read if you read the, I I only skimmed that 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 uh, that uh, uh, position paper or whatever that or the the letter the the, the document that ABI put out a few days ago. But essentially, they, they focus a lot on, you know, reinforcement-based practice procedures being important and so on and so forth. They, they're saying all the right things, and yet, and yet somehow, it's, it's punishment and aversive procedures that are separating and, 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 and causing the most damage to our field, which is just seems so paradoxical mm-hmm. to me. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me how this is even happening, that, that, that well, we 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 just want to keep a little bit of this, um, or we can't let go of this. You know, uh, I don't I don't know I don't know it's not a question. It's just but it's just it's just yeah, it, it it's crazy. It's crazy making in my mind uh, um, uh, that 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 this that this is the central issue in our field um, in 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 such a time of of social movement and social justice and cultural change and so many cool things that are happening as a result of some really horrible things the george floyd murder being you know Mm -hmm. um one of those really horrible things um uh you know has led to so many good things happening and yet this thing still hangs and i don't know yeah i really i appreciate that observation a lot right because we we think about so many major as you were talking thinking about so many major issues that are still happening today that we haven't attended to. This is hugely important. There are other issues related and, you know, extensions and, and maybe even unrelated that we also aren't mm-hmm. thinking about as much. Um, for one example, January 1st, 2023 is right around the corner. And the BACB is no longer credentialing folks from the majority of countries in a couple of months. And um, we, you know, we talked about how the majority of our research is predicated in North America. And then we talked about what's evidence-based. We know that frequency, you know, things will lose validity when they are in different cultures. We haven't actually assessed for for validity in a different mm-hmm. culture. And now there are so many folks that um, are part of, are, you know, parts working in under-resourced areas that are one solo person in that community trying to yep. raise awareness and trying to to help people understand that there are other ways to treat um you know different diagnoses or different identities um and we we were talking about that a lot before we're not mm. talking about that as much now um mm. and maybe we should be and maybe we should be thinking about how there's you know i hope you don't mind me saying here but potentially the voices of a few have been driving what what the field is and now there are there's voices are increasing but i would say they need to continue to increase there's still mm-hmm. a significant discrepancy in identities or disclosed identities of folks that are practicing you know at a uh, bcba bcbad level and rbt registered behavior technician to a board certified behavior analyst position I met with an incredible person the other day who has allowed me to just share a little bit of their story. And they mm. um, they identify as a full-figured person. Um, and they mm. shared that they were removed from cases um, after one session because reportedly um, there was a concern that they wouldn't be able to engage with the learners and I want to I'm being vague specifically right they wouldn't be able to engage or work with the learners I know what you're saying. Yeah. because of who they are and 
it is really critical that we continue to pay attention to the inequity that's happening for our clients, but also for Mm -hmm. our staff and that we create uh, contingencies where people feel safe in um, reporting things like discriminatory practices Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. we are doing more of, you know, encouraging higher education or even, hey, I'm going to say, you know, wild thing, maybe making part of accreditation where, um, Mm -hmm. you know, practices that will support a more diverse body of practitioners are implemented. Totally. And so you're, you're, you're really, you know, I think your point is incredibly well taken that this is, this is critical, right? We do need to absolutely attend um, to what's happening right now to certain folks and where we are. There are, there are related and other equity issues that we also need to, to be attending to because the field is continuing to grow. Um, and we want to yeah. promote an increase in equity, diversity, inclusion, and access that we haven't necessarily historic, historically done. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I have a few minutes left and you, you touched on something that is a good segue into sort of maybe my last question. Well, I don't want to shove aside all the problems that our field have. It does seem like a good chunk of the, the problems in our field are only problems in North America. Um, and, and what's really interesting, it's really interesting, you know, and we won't get into the, sort of the reasons why or whether it's good or bad, but that the BACB has sort of pulled out of this, out of accrediting folks. In some ways, I think that's actually been maybe a positive um, because it has spurred, um, I think, a lot of folks in these other countries to, you know, even work harder to kind of, uh, you know, create systems in, 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 in their in their own countries and in their own communities. And by being able to create your own system that's not sort of based on a North American system, which is the yeah. BACB, which again, I think there's lots of positives about the BACB, but it's completely separate. You know, I think it opens up some really interesting opportunities and I'm seeing lots and lots more folks kind of doing work in other countries. And I've interviewed a lot of them and I've got a lot more of them coming on. Um, uh, and I've really, I'm really trying to kind of go around the world in, in interviews because it's so interesting hearing the perspective of, like you say, the one behavior analyst in that country. A couple of days ago, I interviewed uh, Sharifa Yatim. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, was, she was the first Emirati behavior analyst and, yeah. and the work she's kind of doing to spread the word. Um, um, and you know, I've had a few other folks uh, that, that have kind of been doing that sort of thing. And so it's a really interesting conversation. In fact, we just became, uh, the podcast just became... Uh, uh, certified uh, a continuing education provider for the QABA, oh, which cool. is another sort of international credential that's out there. We're also IBO uh, credit, uh, the, the approved as well. Um, and so there's just some really neat things that are kind of happening around the world. And we talked before that you're actually involved in some work internationally to kind of build systems and develop folks. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I appreciate you kind of bringing us back to that and right and centering that there's so much so much more around the world and love that your love that your podcast is featuring these these folks so the the center that um, i am super excited and humbled to work with anderson center international um, has a a group right now of 35 incredible scholars that have come to the united states from around the world who are generally practicing in places where they are one of the only you know who 
has is form, trying to form an understanding or has this understanding of, of autism and they want to bring back evidence-based practices. Um, so we have colleagues here from India, Zambia, Uganda, um, Bhutan, Bangladesh, um, Albania, and they come and they uh, really focus on learning evidence-based practices as particularly right now, their current internship is in working with individuals with autism and other intellectual and developmental disabilities, and also working on leadership development, you know, how to get the government to buy into making this change, how to raise awareness in the community, how to disseminate um, crisis mm -hmm. prevention training, all of intervention training, all of those amazing things. Um, and now we're also working on supporting the alumni when they go back home. A lot of our alumni mm -hmm. have shared that the training has, they've really enjoyed it, but then they'll go back and they'll be the only one um, and they don't have access to resources. So Anderson Center International, we're so excited to be working on building training databases that are free for folks from around the world, mm. um, you know, so, and that people can contribute to and share, disseminate, um, hopefully actually trying to get some of those to be peer reviewed as well, which I know is not a common thing for training, mm, uh, but I right. think would be a really maybe a potential step, you know, for us to take in, in creating this database um, and also forming global men a global mentorship program. So by the end of this year, we'll have our first, which I'm really excited about, um, where we'll have our alumni, um, folks around the world, experts from North America, experts from different places um, who will talk about evidence-based strategies, listen to case studies, give feedback, and really just form a community, a verbal community, um, where people are working together and um, exchanging ideas, thoughts, resources, that they know they're not alone. And that's going to be free as well um, for our alumni and for the community. Again, our goal is that almost everything that we're doing is is free. And even our scholars that come over, the um, they have to invest in that they pay for their flight here. But Everything else is an, is something that we want to provide because this is a training for them. We don't want this. We want mm -hmm. this to be as accessible as possible. Um, so Anderson Center International now has had about 80 alumni over the past few years, and mm -hmm. we are growing significantly and excited, excited to see, you know, our next steps in building that community for, for folks. Really cool. So this is something that's all, you, you have folks coming over, is it every year or is it? Yeah, it's rotating because it depends on when they, it depends on the political climate and um, approvals mm. in terms of things like visas. So we have sure. folks that are here um, that come in on a rotating basis for 12 to 18 months. So our, wow. you know, our, our group right now, um, we unfortunately say goodbye to some amazing scholars sort of almost every month and then additional scholars will come and join us. So it's this beautiful rotating community where everyone acts as mentors for the other person and helps them to, right. to really be successful in a, in a different place. And then again, supporting when they go back home. So I know I do have um, a lot of international listeners as well. Is this something that folks, like what, what's what's sort of involved to, to be a part of this? How yeah. can a scholar be a scholar in this program? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to just reach out to me, if you wouldn't mind Ben sharing my, my contact information. Um, and what we do, the process is that um, you'll fill out an application, you'll send your CV. There are specific parameters for per the United States um, Department of Homeland Security that someone has to meet. Mm. It just has to do with education and training, but it's Yep. We believe it's manageable. Um, and so we'll walk you through that process. And then if you feel it's a fit and, um, you know, it's a good time in your life to do it, then we'll help support all of the paperwork completion, all of the um, appointments with the embassy, working with sponsors, um, wow. really kind of 
from nuts to bolts we we support until you are here with us and then now we support you on the ground so it's really um if you feel like this could be a fit in terms of your education you've had education and um, your background is in psychology or education, social work, um, so many different areas that could be related. Mm -hmm. um, and you've had some experience or know about working with individuals with autism or other um, intellectual and developmental disabilities, then it could be a fit. Um, so please reach out because I'm happy to, to help support your application and to, to talk with you more about the program. Right on. Really cool. Well, I know we're right on the mark here. I know you got an appointment to get to. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I, I gotta say, super inspiring. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm definitely less. Uh, I'm definitely in, in the glass half full now instead of glass empty around the idea about systems change. I think you you just really, you know, really articulated that well and how it's possible for all of us to kind of contribute to that. And the work you're doing is amazing. I'd like to have you back maybe not 40 years from now, maybe sooner uh, to, 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 to follow up and see how things are going. Uh, but I'll definitely, I'll be 88 for the, for, for the 40 year meetup. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and uh, hopefully we can do that with holograms or something. But anyway, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you, Ben. It was such a pleasure. And I'd love to chat again. Take care, awesome. everybody.